1 Thessalonians 5 will be in verses 19 through 20. Titled this sermon, and I trust you'll see why by the end, I've titled it Testing the Spirits. Actually took that title from a different text that we will connect later from 1 John. But I think that is the topic, Testing the Spirits. To get our minds and hearts back in First Thessalonians, uh, let me remind you that the surrounding context around our text this afternoon uh, emphasizes various in closing instructions from the Apostle Paul to this church in Thessalonica. But specifically, they are instructions for peaceful order within the church and within individuals. So there's maintaining peaceful order or you could just say maintaining peace uh, within the church, uh, among its members, but also within individuals, personal peace. <laughs> um, so I'll read verses 12 through 18 to remind you of that. He said, we ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, or really admonish the unruly or the disorderly. Encourage the faint-hearted. Help the weak. Be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil. But always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. And then there's these, these three rapid-fire instructions about personal peace, which will, alone will make for peace in the church as well. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. And then if we jump down beyond our sermon text for today to verse 23, verse 23 will start by saying, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. So there's this overriding context of peace for God's people. Peace for God's people. And it's just striking. I'm not sure why it didn't strike me until now standing here. But it is striking to me the connection then with this morning. That we have peace with God through the cross of Christ. Right? And we just read in the scripture reading from Leviticus about the peace offering. Celebrating that peace with God. So it all ties together. But our sermon text is not long. It's verses 19 through 22. In the middle of these very coming at peace from these different angles and peace and order in the church, it says this, starting in verse 19. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. This text has often been used in quite a variety of ways, depending on the individual using it. Often, uh, one of these verses is taken uh, out without reference to any of the other verses. But I think it all ties together to make one point, really. I think the big idea of verses 19 through 22 is this. The Apostle Paul instructs this church to test messages supposedly from God's Spirit. The Apostle Paul, in this, in this age of the early church, when, as we will see, uh, the Spirit is still giving direct revelation to people in the congregation, prophecies, uh, the Apostle Paul is instructing this church at Thessalonica to test messages supposedly from God's Spirit. So as we develop what the original significance was of these instructions, first of all, well, in one sense, this is a very simple layout. First, Paul tells them what not to do. Then he tells them what to do. First of all, what not to do. Disdainful quenching of direct revelation is what not to do. Disdainful quenching of direct revelation. Do not quench the spirit. Now, it's true, we could uh, resist the Holy Spirit in other ways, in other contexts. We could resist his work of sanctification in our lives in various ways, or in the lives of our fellow believers. 
We could re- um, unbelievers resist the work of the Holy Spirit all the time. Um, there's so many ways just taken by itself, these words could be understood. But in the broader context, what Paul says right after this, he has something specific in mind. When he says, do not quench the Spirit. And that word for quench really means, at least originally, it meant to extinguish the fire. To put out a fire. Don't put out the Spirit like you'd put out a fire. Um, and then... As a metaphor, as a figure of speech, it didn't always, just like when we use figures of speech, we, we aren't always thinking of the whole background of that figure of speech. Um, it's just a short way of saying something else. So um, quenching then uh, came to mean something like annihilating or causing something to disappear, to put something out, to put a stop to something. And Paul says, don't quench the spirit. Gene Green in his commentary here says, Some Thessalonians appear to have attempted to prohibit manifestations of the Spirit in their church. Since the presence of the Holy Spirit in the community is compared with fire in Scripture, and he gives references, the verb to quench would would aptly describe the attempts to eliminate these manifestations. Again, verses 19 and 20 go together. What he says is, do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies. (laughs) To disdain prophecies in Thessalonica and thus put a stop to them in that assembly would be to quench the Holy Spirit. That is, it would be to refuse the gifts which the Spirit had given to that church. If we are despising the works of the Holy Spirit, we are despising the Holy Spirit himself. That's what scripture teaches. It's also interesting, if you look at 2 Thessalonians 2, um, Paul uses this same word, which here he's talking specifically about the Holy Spirit, prophecy which is genuinely from the Holy Spirit. But in 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 2, he uh, speaks of prophecies by just using the word spirit. Um, I'll just read that. Uh, he asks the brothers not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word, or a letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. So again, uh, in his second letter to these same people, Paul kind of uses the word spirit as shorthand for for, um, a prophetic utterance given from a spirit of some sort. (laughs) We could also contrast quenching the spirit here with what Paul tells Timothy, 2 Timothy 1.6, where he says, For this reason... I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. Again, speaking of a supernatural gift of the Holy Spirit, which Paul had bestowed on Timothy by laying his hands on him. And Paul is there telling him to fan into flame that gift of God, the opposite of quenching it. So do not quench the Spirit, do not despise prophecies. Let's turn to Numbers chapter 11. I want to show you an example in the Old Testament of a misguided desire to quench the Spirit in this way. Numbers 11. Starting in verse 24. Moses was under great stress and pressure First of all, because Israel was complaining again about the manna. They wanted a different kind of food. But, it, but the whole the pressure of, of being the sole leader of God's people was just getting to Moses. And uh, he didn't think he could do it anymore. And God told him to appoint elders to whom he would delegate responsibility in Israel. So Numbers 11, verse 24, So Moses went out and told the people the words of the Lord. And he gathered 70 men of the elders of the people and placed them around the tent. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to him and took some of the spirit that was on him, speaking of the Lord's own spirit, the Holy Spirit, and put it, the spirit, on the 70 elders. And as soon as the spirit rested on them, they prophesied, but they did not continue doing it. That is, these elders were not prophets by office, they 
they didn't keep doing it habitually. They just prophesied on this occasion. Next verse. Now two men remained in the camp, one named Eldad and the other named Medad, and the spirit rested on them. They were among those registered, but they had not gone out to the tent, and so they prophesied in the camp. And a young man ran and told Moses, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the assistant of Moses from his youth, said, My Lord Moses, stop them. But Moses said to him, Are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit on them. As I said, that's one example of a misguided desire by a true believer. Joshua was not an ungodly person. He just had a misguided desire to put a stop to this on this occasion for some reason. Moses perceived that Joshua thought this was a threat to Moses' authority. And so he thought these guys need to be stopped in what they're doing, uh, showing the Holy Spirit uh, prophesying to them in the camp. Um, so, so that's an example in the Old Testament, again, of how even good people could have a misguided idea for whatever reason that we need to, we need to stop these people from getting out of control with these prophecies. Now we need to park for a few minutes and clarify our topic. What was the office and ministry of prophecy in New Testament times? We need need to talk about that. Some in the past, I could list John Calvin, various Puritans, John Wesley, uh, R.C.H. Lenski, an old Lutheran. Uh, Some good men like that have thought that New Testament prophecy sometimes is just referring to ordinary preaching and teaching of the Scripture. Um, You'll see that in some of the old commentaries where they'll say, well, uh, it, it depends where they are in the New Testament. Sometimes they'll say, yeah, here we're talking about supernatural prophecy. Other places they'd say, prophecy here is just referring to preaching. For instance, there's a, a, a classic good uh, Puritan book on preaching called The Art of Prophesying. <laughs> um, and uh, here's what Calvin, John Calvin says, by the term prophecy, however, uh, he's talking about this text in First Thessalonians, I do not understand the gift of foretelling the future, as in 1 Corinthians 14.3. Uh, I'm sorry, but as in 1 Corinthians 14.3, uh, he says, I understand this gift of prophecy as the science of interpreting Scripture, so that a prophet is an interpreter of the will of God. For Paul, in the passage which I have quoted, assigns to prophets teaching for edification, exhortation, and consolation. And enumerates, as it were, these departments. Let, therefore, prophecy in this passage be understood as meaning interpretation made suitable to present use. End of quote. Well, the problem, uh, problem with taking prophecy as sometimes just meaning regular preaching is that Scripture always speaks of prophecy as a direct message from God which has to be delivered without error to be true prophecy. That's very clear throughout Scripture. Now, true, uh, the message of a prophecy might be more like teaching or preaching or exhortation than foretelling the future. Prophecy was not always about a future prediction. It might just be exhorting God's people. But the point of prophecy is the prophet is simply a mouthpiece through which God inherently gives his very words. A true prophet's prophecy says simply, thus says the Lord. There's no indication in Scripture that we we have to distinguish between two kinds of valid prophecies. One kind of prophecy unmixed with human error, and the other one would be humanly fallible. Or one, a direct message from God, and the other, a mixture of God's intention and the prophet's own frail perspective. One of the clearest examples of someone in the New Testament who was neither an apostle nor an evangelist nor a writer of scripture, but he was still a prophet, is the prophet Agabus. Uh, Clearly, Agabus presented his prophetic utterances as God's very words. Acts 11, verses 27 through 29, Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit 
There, there's the Spirit's role here. We're told by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. Much later in the record of Acts, Acts 21, Agabus shows up again. It also mentions some prophetesses at the same time. Acts 21.8. On the next day, Luke says, we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, one of the seven deacons, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. That's consistent with what we see in the Old and New Testament. A prophet says, Thus says the Lord, or Thus says the Holy Spirit. This, this isn't my interpretation of what God says. This is what God simply says. The old Scottish commentator John Eady um, says this here. He says, The prophet was next in honor and position to the apostles. He was a teacher directly inspired by the Holy Ghost, uttering suddenly and consciously, and with strange power, revelations which had not of necessity in them any disclosure of the future, meaning it wasn't always foretelling something. The prophet's impulse was under his own control, He's summing up what Paul says elsewhere, like 1 Corinthians 14. Uh, the prophet's impulse was under his own control, and his teaching was to edification, exhortation, and comfort. His special function was toward them which believe. It was not to win converts, but to promote spiritual progress, though not specially or exclusively. A little farther down, he says, Prophecy, therefore, in the primitive church served a vital and momentous purpose. And he gives some scripture references. Teaching, as distinct from prophesying, was more human and equable in its character as the reflective development of thought was not so original and might not produce those instantaneous and alarming results. End of quote. So prophets were foundational to the universal New Testament church, and prophets, in some senses, had a more more privileged role than shepherds and teachers. Did you catch that? In some senses, prophets had a more privileged role than pastors and teachers. Prophets and prophetesses were to submit to the shepherds in their local churches, but when a prophecy was spoken and confirmed to be genuine, even the shepherds had to submit to the prophet's words as the very words of the Lord. Notice from a couple texts in Ephesians, which we will get to shortly in the the morning sermons, but notice the preeminence of the New Testament prophets in texts about the church. And it's because they speak the very words of God. Ephesians 2, 19-21, So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. That is, as we'll see next week in Ephesians, the church is built on direct revelation from God given through apostles and prophets. Some New Testament prophets, not all, some New Testament prophets uh, wrote parts of the New Testament also. But then there's Ephesians 4, verse 4. For there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. What gifts did Christ give to men? Verse 11. And he lists them in order of rank, in a sense. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ. And 1 Corinthians 12 is actually even more explicit that prophets are higher in honor than than other teachers. 1 Corinthians 12, 27. 
Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? But earnestly desire the higher gifts. All right, so. It shouldn't be a problem for us if we understand that the gift of apostle has ceased to understand that the gift of prophet has ceased along with the era of the apostles. Um, But that being the case, prophets having such an honor in the New Testament church. Back in our text, why might some in the early church contemplate banning the prophets from speaking up in public worship? you thought about that? Why would they want to do that? Now, Paul may not be reacting to something that had actually happened, but he is trying to give a balanced perspective to the Thessalonians. He's saying there's two ditches. Number one, you could overreact one direction by saying, this is too risky. Let's just not have prophets speak in church. That's the one ditch. The other ditch that we'll get to is we just accept whatever anyone says if they, says it's a, if they say it's a prophecy and we don't test it. We'll get there. But why might some think about banning the prophets from speaking up in public worship? Well, think about it. It could be an overreaction to false prophets, bad experiences with false prophets. In fact, it seems clear from Paul's second letter to the Thessalonians that, as we already read, that false revelations did indeed cause confusion in that church. Paul had to tell them, don't be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, he says, 2 Thessalonians 2, 3. There was a danger of being deceived by false prophecies. We don't know exactly how that looked, if this was someone who had been in the church a while and then was revealed to be a false prophet by, by giving this, or maybe someone was passing through town. Oh, I'm a Christian, let me meet with you on Sunday. And then they speak up in, in the church. It's hard to say. William Hendrickson, in his commentary here, says, The reason for this disparagement of prophetical utterances can readily be surmised. Wherever God plants wheat... Satan sows his tares, his weeds. (laughs) Wherever God establishes a church, the devil erects a chapel. I like how he put that. (laughs) God establishes a church, the devil erects a chapel. And so too, wherever the Holy Spirit enables certain men to perform miracles of healing, the evil one distributes his lying wonders. That's actually a phrase taken from 2 Thessalonians, by the way. And wherever the paraclete brings a true prophet upon the scene, the deceiver presents his false prophet. The easiest, but not the wisest, reaction to the state of affairs is to despise all prophesying. Add to this the fact that the fanatics, the meddlers, and the loafers at Thessalonica may not have appreciated some of the utterances of the true prophets. And it is readily understood why by some in the congregation, prophetic utterances had fallen into disfavor. That is, he's adding, not only was there a danger of false prophecy, maybe some in the church, we we hear about some of their problems in these letters. Some people didn't want to work. They wanted to be busybodies. Some people wanted to to say, Christ is coming tomorrow, essentially. Uh, Some were fanatics. Um, Some may not have wanted to hear from the true prophets either. That might rebuke them. (laughs) There could have been that too. So that's what not to do. Don't quench the spirit. Don't despise prophecies or prophesyings. So disdainful quenching of direct revelation is what not to do. But what to do? Verses 21 through 22. Embracing the genuine and rejecting the evil. That's what to do. Embrace the genuine and reject the evil. So he starts out, verse 21, but instead of just throwing out the whole idea of prophecy in church, but test everything. 
Put everything to the test. Doesn't matter who's saying it, put it to the test. The very fact that he, even in Greek, he does use this word we translate, but, that's connecting all these thoughts together. Paul isn't just throwing out random instructions. Hey, don't quench the spirit. On another topic, don't despise prophecies. On another topic, test everything. No, he's, he's linking it all together. Don't do this, don't do this, but do this. Test everything. And that's, this is nothing new for the people of God. This is standard operating procedure in regard to prophecy, starting in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 13.1, If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass, and if he says, Let us go after other gods which you have not known, and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice. And you shall serve him and hold fast to him. But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death. Because he has taught rebellion against the Lord your God. Who brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you out of the house of slavery. To make you leave the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. A phrase, you shall purge the evil or the wicked person from your midst. Paul applies that later to excommunication. 1 Corinthians 5. So one way to test a prophet was they might actually work an actual miracle. Not a fake miracle, an actual supernatural thing. They might have a sign. The devil can work miracles too, to a degree. They might work a wonder and then say, okay, now now that I have credibility with you, we need to go serve other gods. How do you test that? Well, you recognize this prophet just contradicted what God has plainly said already in the scriptures. In this case, in the Old Testament law. He has rejected what God has already revealed about himself. It's blatantly inconsistent with God's word, which we know is God's word. We test it. In this case, we find it to be a false prophecy, even though it has a miracle to supposedly back it up. And we reject the false prophet. Or Deuteronomy 18, starting in verse 15, Moses says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly, when you said, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see this great fire any more, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. Again, notice, a prophet was not allowed to improvise and, and contribute his thoughts. He was only allowed to pass on what God had actually said, specifically. And if you say in your heart, verse 21 of Deuteronomy 18, if you say in your heart, how may we know the word that the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. That still applies um, as a further confirmation uh, when certain groups, um, even in our day, will make wild predictions as supposed prophecy. And then over and over, often, it's just proven untrue. <laughs> Don't listen to them. They're not true prophets. It's not just that they got it wrong once and they'll get it right the next time. No, if they get it wrong once, they are a false prophet, God says. Test it. If they're my prophet, what they say will come to pass, God says. Then turn to 1 John 3 with me. 1 John 3 in the New Testament. 
1 John 3, verse 23, and we'll go through the first verses of chapter 4. Let me remind you, as you're turning there, the, the old Apostle John is writing this epistle to churches that it seems are being confronted with some heretical groups who claim to have secret knowledge about a deeper level or a higher level of Christianity with secret truths. And they have departed from the actual church to form their own groups. John says they departed from us to show they were not not really of us. But apparently this involved, included sometimes, false prophets claiming to speak by the Spirit of God. 1 John 3, verse 23, And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God, and God in him. By the way, the heretics and the spirit of Antichrist that John talks about apparently did not emphasize godly living either. And by this we know that he abides in us, by the Spirit whom he has given us. Remember, there's no chapter division originally, so we go to verse 1 of chapter 4. Beloved, do not believe every spirit. So he's just talked about the Spirit whom God has given us, the Holy Spirit, but then he says there's more than one spiritual influence that you could encounter. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us, the apostles, the apostolic church. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. In John's day, one thing I didn't mention yet about these false teachers was that apparently some of them, like a man named Serenthus of the day, they denied that Jesus Christ was truly man. They said he was divine, but he didn't actually come in the flesh. Maybe he just appeared to be a man. Something on that order. But they, they didn't want to say, they, they wanted to refute, refuse the idea that God actually took to himself a human nature. Jesus Christ came in the flesh. And so John says, if this, if this spirit is prophesying against the incarnation of Jesus Christ, you know it's the spirit of Antichrist. So test it. Test it by the truth you know. Jeff Wyma in his commentary on Thessalonians, says the need to test prophecy is also found in the Apostles' extended discussion of spiritual gifts to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 12-14. through 14. Early in that discussion, Paul catalogs a variety of spiritual gifts and, immediately after referring to the gift of prophecy, lists the gift of distinguishing between spirits. Uh, it's the idea of distinguishing, evaluating, judging between spirits. A gift that presupposes the necessity for prophecy to be tested. Near the end of that same discussion, Paul commands, let two or three prophets speak and let the others evaluate, diacrino, judge what is said. I'll read you that text briefly. 1 Corinthians 14, 26-33. What then, brothers? When you come together, he's speaking about the assembled church in Lord's Day worship. When you come together... Each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two, or at most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others weigh, there's that word for judging, weigh or judge what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. 
For you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and all be encouraged. And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. Again, G.K. Beale here says, As in 1 John 4, 1-6, through 6, this refers not to determining what part of a prophetic message is from God and which is not, but which prophets are from God and which are not. Remember, if part of a prophecy is invalid, that means it's a false prophet. All right, back to 1 Thessalonians 5. Test everything. And then hold fast what is good. There's an outcome when you test things. If it's good, meaning if it's genuine, if it's a genuine prophecy from God, hold it fast, pay attention, heed it, cling to it. Same word which uh, Jesus uses in Luke 8, verse 15, in the parable of the soils. As for that in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. That's pretty obvious. If it is from God, pay attention. Hold it fast. But the opposite, abstain from, or more literally you could say, hold away every form of evil. Let me talk to you about, again, it's a good translation, but every translation has faults. Let me talk to you about the King James Version here, which says, all appearance of evil. Abstain from all appearance of evil. Um, and it didn't, that didn't start with the King James. It started much earlier. Uh, as John Eady, the old Scot, said, the authorized version reads, all appearance of evil. That is, avoid even what bears the aspect of evil, though it may not really be evil. <laughs> he says this notion is found in some of the older English versions, in Wycliffe, in the Rhymes, and in Cranmer. Tyndale having all suspicious things, abstain from all suspicious things. And the Vulgate had something similar. Gary Shogren says the KJV translation, abstain from all appearance of evil, is unfortunate, although I'm not certain whether the translators of the KJV or the users of that version are to blame for a long-standing misinterpretation. As I said, it actually goes far before then. But uh, he says its rendering of chapter 5, verse 22, has been the basis for what is virtually a special branch of ethics, that a believer should refrain from any practice which might appear to be evil, typically to another Christian, although in theory to any person whatever. This has led to the principle that one's behavior should be guided by the perception of others, even if no one has voiced an objection. Well, you don't think it's wrong, and neither do I, and nobody has said anything about it, but to someone it might give an appearance of evil, and therefore you must refrain from it. Usually this interpretation of chapter 5, verse 22 is linked with not being a stumbling block to other people. 1 Corinthians 8, 13. By the way, I think a lot of people misunderstand the context of that, too, what a stumbling block is. But that's another topic. He says, this is not at all the gist of Paul's command in, in 5.22. All appearance of evil must be laid aside in favor of every sort or every kind of evil as the NIV and many other versions have. Paul is not speaking of what appears to be wrong, but evil which shows its face in many ways. In a moment, we will see some examples of evil that comes from false prophets and has to be stiff-armed. But that's the point. Paul is not saying here, anytime someone could possibly construe something you're doing as evil, don't do it. In context, he's saying, and, and the Greek can be very easily taken this way, evil can show its way and it can show its face in many ways. It can show up in a variety of ways. But no matter how it shows itself, hold it at arm's length, say no to it, reject it. Now you've hung with me for really digging down, understanding the significance of these instructions. Let's talk about the ongoing relevance. See there in your handout, uh, and it doesn't mean we'll have to spend a lot of time on each one, but there are five things I'm picking out here. First of all, 
Don't outlaw the good in reaction to the bad. Don't outlaw the good in reaction to the bad. Quench not the spirit. Despise not prophecies. John Eady in his commentaries explains this. He says, from the abuse, they were not to argue against the use or forbid the genuine because of the spurious manifestation, end of quote. Now think with me. We are all, we could all tend in some context to do this, to outlaw the good in reaction to the bad, even in spiritual things. Many have experienced the ungodly, unedifying use of something, leading them to simply outlaw it. And as I bring up relevant things, I'm not aiming at anyone here, um, just to say, put that out there. If we've had a conversation before about any of this, I'm not targeting anything like that. But in general, um, things like book discussion groups or Bible study groups, which, you know, we've all experienced the bad version of that. It can become easily focused on everyone's opinion rather than objective truth, right? It can be really bad. Or it might even advance false doctrine or replace the proper place of public worship and preaching. Or you could talk about small in-home groups within a larger church. Sometimes they become divisive little cliques or unedifying gossip circles. Or we could talk about church-sponsored prayer meetings. You know, some people feel really uncomfortable going to a church prayer meeting. Why? Because they've seen a really bad side of it. <laughs> um... It can be a place where people feel entitled to go on and on about the mundane affairs of their lives and the lives of everyone they know. Um, And it's not really to a spiritual purpose anymore. Well, don't outlaw the good in reaction to the bad. I'm sure you could think of more examples for yourself of this principle. Um, Book discussions, Bible studies, small groups, prayer meetings, each of those things can also be used for great good. But if we, if we, if we have a bad experience with something spiritual and then outlaw that across the board, we have to be consistent with that. You know, inexperienced preachers might say dumb things from the pulpit, and so might experienced preachers, by the way. <laughs> but think of, you know, who we let up here in the pulpit. Well, that man has less experience. What's he going to say? But that's not a reason for me to ban Laman from this pulpit. The Spirit has given preaching and teaching gifts to more than just current elders in the church. And if I were to say that only pastors could preach in our pulpit, I would be quenching the Spirit, despising his work among us. Yes, there's always risks to good things. Outlawing the good in reaction to the bad can also happen in just about any area of life. It can happen not just in a church, it can happen in a school. Some schools have very long lists of rules because someone at some point did something. Oh, we have to make a new rule for that. (laughs) You can't outlaw every risk of something bad happening. This can happen in a workplace. It can happen in a home. Parents, don't just outlaw things left and right because you fear what might happen if you allow some freedom. Don't do that. Risk can be good, and anything good can be mishandled. But back to the real point of this text. Secondly, don't disdain the Spirit's work in reaction to the evil one's work. In fact, that's one big reason why Satan gives us so many fits in the church and he keeps that he will cause bad things to happen so that we will be trigger shy, <laughs> so that we will be maybe shell shocked. I've seen something really well. I know people I'm not talking about anyone here actually at all. I'm just saying in general, I, I know people who have attended a church for like a decade and will not join the church. Why? Well, last time I was a member of a church, everything blew up. <laughs> That's 
and it kept them from joining the church. Satan had gotten to them. He made them afraid of a good thing. Don't disdain the Spirit's work in reaction to the evil one's work. People in our day often slander true Christianity as if it were just another cult or a fake healing ministry. Well, I've seen that before. You're a preacher? Yeah, like Benny Hinn. (laughs) People slander the idea of God's miraculous works in history because they've heard of fake miracles. Don't disdain the Spirit's work in reaction to the evil one's work. It's easy to do. And Christians can also be tempted to throw out the Spirit's work with its counterfeits. For instance, you may have been exposed to man-made revivalism and its bitter fruits. Walk the aisle, pray a prayer, sign this card, we'll add to our numbers. (laughs) Or whatever. But because of that exposure to a bad thing, you might reject the proper desire for God-sent revival and seasons of widespread spiritual awakening. You might think it's a bad thing to pray for God to do something big in salvation and sanctification. A third application. Discern and decide whether spiritual messages are good or evil. And some have to go to the care center. Um, I understand that. Discern and decide whether spiritual messages are good or evil. You cannot... You cannot outsource your responsibility for discernment to a pope, to a priest, to a favorite preacher or speaker, to a teacher. As Matthew Henry says, proving all things must be in order to holding fast that which is good. We must not always be seekers or fluctuating in our minds like children tossed to and fro with every wind of doctrine. We believe in the priesthood of the entire church, including every believer, right? We believe in individual soul liberty to discern God's truth from his word. That's good and right. But that places a great weight of responsibility on each one of us. We cannot be lazy or apathetic about what is spoken as God's truth. We can't farm off our own responsibility to the experts. We have to listen to the shepherds and teachers Christ gives his church, but we have to listen so that we can intelligently exercise our own duty of discernment. Put it this way. The shepherds and teachers can sharpen our swords, but they can't do our spiritual warfare for us. You test all things. You have to do the work. Are the spiritual messages you hear good or evil? They cannot be neutral. I'm not saying that preaching and teaching are ever infallible, as prophecy was, but preaching and teaching, are they declaring God's truth or perverting that truth? In a basic sense, you have to discern and you have to decide. Fourth, when God's word speaks, receive the message. James 1.19, know this, my beloved brothers, that every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in the mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. When God's word speaks, receive the message. And they have to close with the fifth one. When, when God's word is counterfeited, reject the counterfeit. We have a positive and a negative example in Revelation chapter 2. First of all, think about the church in Thyatira. Jesus addresses them in his letter to the church at Thyatira. And he says, I have this against you that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess. 
and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality, fornication, could be spiritual or literal, and to eat food sacrificed to idols. He goes on to say that he's, he's going to destroy this woman, and those, this woman and those who follow her. She claims to be a prophetess, and the church did not shut her down. They did not reject the counterfeit as they ought to have done. On the other hand, though he has things to rebuke in the church at Ephesus, earlier in Revelation chapter 2, Jesus says, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. And later he says, this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. If we're going to love God, we ought to love what he loves and hate what he hates. We have to reject the counterfeits. Let's be serious about our calling as Christians to discern, to test everything that claims to be God's truth, embrace that which is genuine, but abstain from every way evil shows its face. It might have a really good mask on, but you can see behind the mask with discernment. You need to see it and reject it if it's a counterfeit. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that we have your word of prophecy in black and white with us. What a privilege. Even in church history, what a privilege the day we live in. May we keep our eyes on that word of prophecy as on a light in a dark place. And may we, even today, though we don't have true prophets, may we evaluate everything that presents itself as your truth. May we evaluate it by what you've already said in your word and by the fruit of those who claim to be your spokesman. May we test everything, hold fast that which is good and hold away that which is evil. Help us not to overreact the other direction either and, and condemn good things or outlaw good things, spiritually speaking. Lord, we could make a misstep in so many directions, and so our trust is in you, that you will, you will be with us. Your Holy Spirit will empower us to make good decisions, good evaluations, and to hold fast to your truth. Help us for Jesus' sake. Our trust is in him and in you, our Father. We pray this in his name. Amen.